What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. Thomas Johnson was a man who lived in the state of Virginia in the 1800s. But he lived in an age that was far different than what we're living in right now. You see, Thomas Johnson was living in a time period when slavery was at its very peak. And unfortunately, for 28 years of his life, he was bound in shackles and chains by the horrific, horrendous thing we called slavery. He was beaten, he was whipped, he was bruised, he was abused, he was spat upon, mistreated, impoverished, and treated as a piece of property for 28 years he received the extremities of what it means for somebody to have great hatred and great racism towards another all simply because he was an African American one day his master came to him and said we are going to a book burning And there, he was brought to this place where they had this bonfire and these masters or these owners of slaves. um, And and just for the record, if you think God's word condones owning another person as a piece of property or treating them as if they are a piece of property, you have misread the holy text of God's word. But anyways, there he was at this fire in the state of Virginia in which we are residing in right now. And there they took these books and were throwing these books into the fire and these articles and these sermons. And Thomas looked at his master and said, why are we throwing away these sermons? And he said, because there's a preacher that is talked about in these sermons and he's condemning slavery. You got to keep in mind, there was a, there was a movement within the 1800s and, and give or take a few years of people trying to give a biblical defense for treating another human being as a piece of property known as slavery. And Thomas asked his owner, his master, well, who's the name of this preacher? <laughs> and you'll probably never guess, but the name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Spurgeon was asked at one time in his ministry in London what his thoughts were with slavery, and he described it as being the most despicable of sins man could ever concoct. That's not the end of the story. Thomas Johnson was sitting by that fire as they were throwing these books and these articles and these sermons there to burn to ashes. He thought to himself, I want to one day meet this preacher who's preaching against slavery. But keep in mind, Thomas Johnson was a slave. He was owned by another human being, treated as if he was property, and could not on his own free will march out of that piece of property, get into a boat, and cross the high seas of the Atlantic Ocean and go to the United Kingdom and London specifically. Didn't have the means to do it. But finally, the day came when 
Thomas Johnson, after 28 years of being held in the bondage of slavery, was freed. The story goes in his life that he would eventually be called by God, not just to salvation, but called by God to be a pastor and a preacher and a minister of the gospel. And he would go to Denver and be a pastor. He would go to Chicago, Illinois and be a pastor. And somewhere along the ways, he encountered somebody who had connections with Charles Spurgeon and Thomas Johnson felt called and compelled by God to go to his home nation, Africa, and tell the people there about the good news of the gospel. And the person who had connections with Spurgeon wrote to Spurgeon, and said, hey, there's this man by the name of Thomas Johnson who is in, in bound in shackles and chains of slavery for 28 years, and he wants to go to Africa to be a missionary, but he doesn't have the means to do it. Can he come study at the pastor's college in London? And Spurgeon not only invites him to come, but pays not just for his way, but his entire family's way to cross the Atlantic Ocean, to come and stay for a couple of years in London all expenses paid, and then to be commissioned and sent to Africa to take the good news of the gospel to the land in which he was once sold over to be a slave. As I heard about that story, I was instantly reminded of Jude chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. And I was instantly reminded of this thought, what am I doing to reach the lost? My friends, the title of today's message. In fact, the key thought I have for you today is simply the title and the screen behind me. Reach the lost at all cost. Think about this. We say the gospel can have transformation power in the life of a lost sinner. We believe that, we preach that, but I'm afraid today in our culture, we act as if we don't believe that. Think about this, long and hard. Because if we really believed the urgency of the gospel message, we would do everything within our resources, everything within our capability to go to not just the places in Roanoke, to go into the alleys to find people who are homeless, to go into the different areas where people are being stricken by sex trafficking, to go to those who are orphans and try to help them and clothe them and feed them all so that we could share the gospel with them. If we were serious about this gospel message which we preach, we would do a lot more than what we do right now. So I ask you, what are you doing to reach the lost? I'm all about buying volume after volume in the study and enhancing my understanding of scripture. Understanding the context of the book of Jude, I'm all about it. But notice so far, in verses one and two, he's introducing himself as I am Jude, I am the half-brother of Jesus Christ, and I am the brother of James. And he begins to write, and he, he gives his thesis here in verses three and four, and he says, that, hey, I'm, I'm writing unto you. I once wanted to write unto you about the common salvation which we once received, but now I, I am just uh, compelled to write unto you of the urgency to contend for the faith because there's these infiltrators who've crept inside the house churches and the churches of this day to teach things that are contrary about Jesus being the son of God and saying you can live however you want to live and believe Jesus is the son of God. And so from verses five down to verse 16, he is describing through these biblical and natural illustrations of these false teachers. But he comes to verse 17, 18, and 19 and begins the application about going back and reading and studying what the apostles said. 
And then in verses 20 through 23, his focus is now on how exactly do we contend for the faith. And the premise, I believe, of these four verses is reach the lost at all cost. But the question I want to ask you today is simply this. We understand that's our mandate. We understand that is our mission as a believer. But how do we do that? How do we or how can we reach the lost? I'm glad you asked today because I believe that that the writer Jude is giving us two specific ways. The first thought is from verses 20 and 21, and the second thought is from verses 22 and 23. But keep in mind, Jude is writing by means of the Spirit of God through the inspiration of God's Spirit, and he's writing to these Jewish believers who have a working knowledge of the Old Testament, and they have the working knowledge of some of these extra biblical documents that were surfacing in their day. He's writing sometime between 67 to 70 AD and just prior to the temple of Jerusalem being destroyed. And he's combating the kind of false doctrine that I believe is alive and well today. Things that are attacking the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ and things that are attacking the concept of we are to live holy. But notice verses 20 and 21. The first thought is this. How can we reach the lost? Well, first of all, reach the lost by keeping yourself in the love of God. Reach the lost by keeping yourself in the love of God. If you've spent any time meditating in verses 20 and 21, you're going to notice there are four commands. However, there is one major command that all the other three are rooted and anchored into. And that is, verse 21 says, keep yourselves in the love of God. That is the main command in these two verses. And the other three are byproducts of keeping ourselves in God's love. Now, I know what you're saying. You're saying, well, why is Jude using the concept of keeping ourselves in God's love? I thought that once we receive God's love, we abide in his love. Yes, we do. But here the idea that Jude is referencing here is the concept of once we have received God's love, we demonstrate to others that we have God's love by obeying God's word. So the context here is in the idea of obedience to the word of God. So instead of saying, keep yourselves in love of God, we could literally say, obey God's word. (laughs) You say, well, I thought the Great Commission was about going to Africa or to go to to Saudi Arabia or to go to Central America and take the gospel to, to tribes that have never heard. Yeah, that's part of it. But the first step in the Great Commission is simply getting to know Jesus. That's the first step. And when you begin to get to know Jesus, you begin to live out his commands. And then it'll just be a natural response of sharing the gospel. You remember that day a few years ago when when the moon was in front of the sun? That was a unique day. We got our weird little sunglasses and we all went outside and we got our selfies and I was right there with everybody and we post our selfies about us going outside and looking at the moon blocking the sun. It was an interesting day. But I remember that when the moon blocked the sun, it was as if the rays of the sun was prohibited by shining upon the earth. And I say that to say this, that when we are living in a context of disobeying God's word, the rays of God's love is blocked by our disobedience. And today, my friends, that if we want to abide in the concept of God's love, we've got to obey his word. I'm not saying that, that we need to 
earn God's love by obeying his word. I'm saying that because we have received by grace and through faith God's love, we are to obey his word. But now let me draw your attention back to verse 20. Remember, the the first command, the major command, is keeping yourself in the love of God. But how do we do that? Well, look at verse 20. It says, by building up yourselves on your most holy faith. Would you say faith with me? Faith. Say it again. Faith. This is, simply means this. Keep yourself in God's love by growing in the scriptures. The word faith here does not mean I put my personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Although it can mean that at other times in scripture. Remember back in Jude chapter one, verse number three, he uses the word faith again. And he says, contend for the faith. This is not the idea that I trusted Jesus as my Lord and Savior by faith. It's the idea that this is the the body of doctrine that makes up our faith. And so it says we are to build each other up on this most holy faith. Build up. Remember, just in the previous verses, it talked about these people who were devoid of the Spirit of God. They were false teachers. They were not believers. They were not regenerated. They were unsaved. And they were stepping inside the church to destroy the church and to tear the people down. But that's not what we're to do here. When we gather together, it's as if we have the foundation of Jesus Christ. That is the, 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 the sure foundation that is unsettled. And we build upon that by teaching the word of God, by encouraging, by edifying, by building each other up, praying for each other, helping each other understand God's word, sharpening each other by instead of talking about the latest football game or baseball game or whatever, not to say there's nothing wrong with that, but we gather together, it would be far greater for us to encourage each other with God's word in our conversations. And here, I like the idea that it says most holy faith. This is that word that that gives the idea that we are to be sanctified. This is a sanctified faith. In other words, this faith is set apart from any other religious faith that's ever existed. Because this is the only faith by which we can be saved. This is the only faith that lays out the, the pure doctrine of how we can get to know God and how we can know God's word. And share it with others. Think about this now. For those of you who have children, maybe you homeschool, maybe you don't. But you educate them so they can learn how to read. But it's much more than that. We educate students so that they can read. So that one day they can read God's word. So that one day they can be be awakened by God's spirit about this most holy faith. We want to train students and anybody who wants to learn to play instruments, not just so that they can sit back and play some of the most latest and greatest pop songs or country songs, but so that one day they could stand inside a congregation of believers and lead those people in worship of the songs that reveal the idea of this most holy faith. And we understand that faith by this book right here that we hold. Keep yourself in God's love by growing in the scriptures. But now check this out. He moves on to the other minor command here. Not just building up yourselves on your most holy faith, but it says praying in the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit. 
Would you say pray with me? Pray. Say it again. Pray. Secondly, keep yourself in God's love by praying in the Spirit. Now, there's another verse in Ephesians. I'll read it to you. It's Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 18, right after the armor of God section. And he uses very similar terminology. He says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Very similar terminology as Jude 1.20. What this simply means is that we are to, when we go to God in prayer, prayer is simply bringing your petitions and requests and laying them at the feet of Jesus. That's all it is. It's having a conversation with God, asking him to get involved in the equation of your life. But it, but it, but it goes further than that. When we're praying in the spirit, this does not mean speaking in gibberish or the modern idea of tongues. This is simply, it means that we are to be praying in, a, in, in, in the idea to be guided and controlled and governed by the Spirit of God. There are some people out there who use this verse as a proof text of speaking in tongues, but I would just respectfully like to share with you that the modern idea of speaking in tongues can be traced back to around 1904 at the Azusa Street Revival. And if you go back further into church history, this modern concept of gibberish is nowhere found. Um, and so we can't use this as support for speaking in this modern gibberish. In fact, the, the real idea of speaking in tongues, if you just go and study the book of Acts, you'll read that somebody was speaking in their native tongue and those other people were hearing in their native tongue. And that is a supernatural, miraculous power of God on display in that time. And so I'm not gonna sit here and say that if I went to another, another nation and I was preaching in English and they heard me in their native tongue, I'm not gonna limit and say God cannot do that today. But what I am saying today is that you cannot use Jude chapter one, verse 20 as a proof text for this modern idea of gibberish. And it means that just as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter five, that we are to be influenced by God's spirit and controlled by God's spirit, it goes into the prayer life that when we're praying, we're to be praying in Jesus' name and according to God's will. We know that God's gonna answer our prayers and we pray under the influence of God's spirit. But then the other commandment here, remember he says keep, this, this word keep in verse 21, it gives the sense of, of fortifying your life around God's love. All of you have heard of the Great Wall of China. I guess many, 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 many years ago, it seemed like a great idea to build a wall around your entire country to keep intruders out. I mean, it's something they did in the ancient world. I mean, you know, we read about the days of Nehemiah when they fortified the city by building the wall around it, except China is a lot bigger than Jerusalem, <laughs> way bigger. And so now all it is is, is just a big um, ancient wonder of the past. And maybe one day I'll get to go there, and maybe one day you will too. But as I think about that great wall of China, I think about how we are to fortify our lives by God's word. And we do that so that we can continue to abide and obey his word and not stray like these believers were being tempted to stray. He says, keep yourselves in God's love. But then he says, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So we can keep ourselves in God's love by growing in the scriptures, by praying in the spirit. But now check this out. Keep yourself in God's love by waiting for the Savior. 
Keep yourself in God's love by waiting for the Savior. This, in fact, verse 21, gives us the idea that Jude has in mind the return of Christ. And if you do not believe in the second coming of Christ and you call yourself a Christian, you need to reread the Bible because it's all over the Bible, especially right here in this text. In fact, Paul writes in Titus chapter 2, he says, looking for the blessed hope of the great appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Listen, it gives the idea that we are to every single day, every moment of the day, anticipate and watch and wait for his return. I'm not going to sit here and say I know exactly when he's going to come again. I'm not going to say that. But I am going to say this, that he is going to come again. And he will split that eastern sky as some of the songwriters have spoke about. And there we will see the risen sovereign savior up in the clouds descending down to establish his earthly kingdom right here on this earth. And by the way, he will show us all what it's like to be a true godly ruler of the universe. He will show us what a pure politician is like when he establishes his kingdom. And my friends, he's got my vote, even though he doesn't need it. Because he's going to establish his kingdom whether you like it or not. I wonder today, I know, I know you're saying, well, well, what does this have to do about reaching the lost? It has everything to do about reaching the lost. You've got to study the scriptures. You've got to be in the scriptures and if you want to share the scriptures with somebody else. You've got to be obeying the word of God. You've got to be spending time in prayer, asking God to direct you, direct each step of your day, direct each step of your life so that you can come across this scene here or go to this store here and you see somebody who might be in need and you go and talk to them about Jesus. And then each moment we're living as if it could be our last day. Each moment as if it could be the time in which Jesus returns. That's the idea here in Jude chapter 1 verse 21. I love the word mercy. He says we are to be looking for that great mercy. Listen, I am a beneficiary of the grace of God from Calvary. God has allowed me to experience salvation. It's nothing I've done. And because of his amazing grace, when he returns, if I'm gone already, I'll get to return with him. But if he comes in my lifetime, I get to go up with him. But then it says, we are looking, anticipating, and waiting, and watching for this mercy. Right now, I've already experienced God's mercy, but in that day, it will reach its full maturity. And I will experience the full mercy of God that we will experience in the eternal bliss. Here it speaks about this eternal life. I know that we already have eternal life. I mean, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We, we realize that, that this everlasting life is a present possession we have right now, but it extends into eternity. And we're to be looking for Christ because one of these days he's going to return and we will see him face to face and we will get to experience the grace, love, and mercy face to face. Reach the lost at all cost. My friends, how are we doing in our obedience to God's word? My sister, how are you doing in your obedience to the word of God? My brother, how are you doing in your obedience to, to the word of God? Are you surrounding yourself with the fortification of God's power so that you can make sure you obey his word? And when you stumble, are you prepared to confess it? May I now draw your attention to verses 22 and 23? 
in the first couple of verses is the idea of guarding ourselves. It's, it's the idea of preparation so that we can go and reach. Verses 22 and verse 23 teach us this about reaching the lost. Reach the lost by rescuing those who've strayed from God. Reach the lost by rescuing those who've strayed from God. As I look out in this auditorium today, I see individuals, men, women, young men, young women, who at one time in your life, in my life, we were strayed away from God. We were running far and fast away from God, but God in his infinite love reached down from glory and snagged us and snatched us and saved us and brought us back to his fold. Remember what the prophet said? He said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We all have. And God is the great shepherd who brings us back to his fold. And I am so thankful for Jesus and his sacrifice 2,000 years ago. And that how he reaches out to just the one who's gone astray to bring back to the 99. And maybe you're here today. And maybe you grew up going to church your whole life. And maybe you've heard of this idea of Jesus. Or, or maybe you haven't. Maybe, maybe this is the first time you've ever been in a worship service. Or the first time in a long time. I'm here to tell you something. God loves you so much that he will reach after you and pull you back through his grace. But in verse 22, he gives us, I believe here in these two verses, he gives us three categories of different people who've strayed away. And the first category is those who've experienced doubt. In verse 22, think about this. Rescue those who've strayed from God into doubt. It says, and if some have compassion, a very similar word to the word mercy in verse 21. Pitying and loving somebody and expressing mercy towards them. And it says making a difference. And the idea here is making a difference to those who have experienced great doubt and the idea of Jesus being the son of God and living a holy life. You know, I find it very interesting that the longer we live on this earth, the more manuscripts we discover about God's word. More and more and more. Thousands here and thousands there. And in an age of, of so much skepticism, we are digitalizing all these different manuscripts of, of the Old and New Testaments to where that if somebody happens to burn them, we still have them. In an age full of great skepticism and doubt, there is so much evidence to support the, the, the truth of God's word. And so I'm, I'm not here to deny that all of us at some point have had doubts. Maybe you've had doubts about your salvation. Maybe you've had doubts about the Bible being the word of God. Listen, we've all been there. I've been there. We have. But the purpose is simply this, is that when we see a brother or a sister who experiences doubt, maybe based upon, maybe they had a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness come and knock on their door and they begin to doubt some of the orthodox teachings of Scripture, that can go back all the way to the apostles, maybe they begin to doubt some of those things. It's not the time to write them off and to excommunicate them. That's the time that we wrap them underneath our arms of compassion and we begin to reiterate the truth of Scripture. Do you know anybody in your life that is experiencing doubt about God's word or about salvation? Listen, there might be somebody who's doubting the idea that Jesus is exclusively the only way to heaven. 
And what we can do with them is we can show them, hey, Jesus said in himself that he's the only way in John 14. The, the uh, apostle Peter in his sermon in Acts chapter four, four, he says that salvation is only through this man named Jesus. And so we can take God's word and we can show and help them. Maybe they're doubting, well, is it okay for me to just do whatever I want and live however I want? No, we can show them, hey, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commands. So we are called to rescue those who've strayed from God into doubt. But then check this out. Verse 23. It says, and others save. Would you say save with me? Save. Say it one more time. Save. This is the idea of rescuing. This is the idea of delivering. This really is the major command in these two verses here about saving others with fear by pulling them out of the fire. So think about this. Not only can we rescue those who strayed from God in doubt, but we can rescue those who stray from God into danger. You see, if somebody is left to their doubts and we don't step into their life and help them understand that, listen, God's word is trustworthy, the gospel is the truth, if we don't step in to help them, they will one day stray into something far greater than doubt. That is danger. Isn't it interesting here? It's a save with fear. The idea that when we are out sharing the gospel, it is not to be done with hatred. It is not to be done with pride. It is to be done with love and great humility. And pulling them out of the fire. Have you ever wanted to be a firefighter before? Maybe as a kid you had this idea that you wanted to get all that gear on just because I know that all I wanted to do was slide down the pole from the top story down to the, second, the first story. Um, but could you imagine, let's just say there's a fire, God forbid that to happen, but let's say there's a fire on our campus. Would you say it would be a good idea for me to run in there like this without any gear on? Absolutely not. I could experience great burns and maybe second or third degree burns. I could, I could be, very, be injured very seriously. Would it be a good idea for me to go into a burning building that was about to fall down without ever going through the training of a firefighter? No way. I mean, there might be a time where I felt compelled to do that, but the idea is simply this. If that there is a burning building, we need those who are properly trained and properly clothed to go in so that they can notice that staircase is about to fall down, the, the walls here are about to cave in, the floor's about to give in, and then so that if they walk in, they have the proper suit on so that the, if the fire hits them, it will protect them. And here's the idea that Jude is saying is that when we go out into the world, we need to make sure we have the proper gear on because when we're trying to pull these people out of great danger, we might get burned ourselves. We might get scathed by the flesh and sin ourselves. So many times people have been trying to reach others and as they try to reach others, they stumble and fall into a similar sin that of the person they're trying to reach. And here I also believe that it's also speaking about the greater fire of the afterlife. Yes, I believe that, that if somebody is in, in an unregenerate state right now and they're an unbeliever, they are already abiding under the judgment of God as John chapter three speaks about. But here I believe it's going further of not just abiding presently under God's judgment, but abiding eternally under God's judgment in the lake of fire for all eternity. 
John writes about this, man. He does. I know it's not popular. I know it's not well-received in our culture today, but the Bible is clear that once you exit this life, you will spend eternity with God in heaven or eternity without God in the lake of fire or hell. And so when we are out rescuing and sharing the gospel with people, we need to keep in mind that if they died in that state, they're gonna experience God's wrath for eternity. And so my question is this, does that concern you? Does it concern you in such a way that you will have a ministry that will impact cultures across the Atlantic Ocean like Spurgeon? But then, in verse 23, he goes on to not just talk about rescuing those who strayed from doubt and, and into danger, but rescuing those who strayed from God into defilement. Check out verse 23. The last part, it says, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. You know what a leper was in the Old Testament? A leper was somebody who contracted a, a skin disease and it would like turn their skin a, a, like white and, and people would just make them be quarantined until they're healed. And some of them were never healed. But if you're wearing clothes and you experience leprosy, those clothes are defiled. You gotta get rid of those clothes. It's interesting, also this word for garment here, it gives the idea of not just the outer clothing that you wear, but the inner undergarments that you wear. I'm wearing a white under t-shirt right here. You know, for, for years, I would just buy the pack at Walmart, and man, I'm wearing that for five years. <laughs> I am. But I begin to realize that over time, you know, maybe I'm saying a little too much here, but underneath my armpits, there's this huge stain. If you continue to have that white t-shirt, I mean, it's nasty. It's disgusting. And I, I, I realized that and I said, you know what? I'm going to get a new pack of white tees every year because I don't want that stain there. Disgusting. Just as something like that might be disgusting. Or, or think about this. Could you imagine wearing the same pair of underwear and the same pair of socks for an entire year without changing them? That would be disgusting, right? That'd be horrible. Please don't do that. <laughs> I did not do that, just for the record. But here it says, hating even the garment, or the, if you will, the undergarment that is exposed right on the skin that is spotted by the flesh. In other words, that, that when those garments are defiled, it's time to get a new wardrobe or a new clothes. Here, the idea is simply this, is that when we're living in this culture, eventually at some point, we're gonna be spotted by the flesh. Whether we're believers or unbelievers, we're gonna be embarking into sin and we're just gonna be hit by sin. We are, because we've missed the mark. But here, it says that, that we should rescue these people with godly sense of fear, pulling them out of the fire and realizing that, that when we reach in, we might be affected by their life and their practice and their sin. I wanna encourage you today by reading to you a verse that I think is a parallel passage. It's James chapter five. And it's the last two verses of James who happens to be the brother of Jude. And he says in James chapter five, verses 19 and 20, you don't have to turn there, just listen. It says, brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converts the sinner from the air of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude 
of sins. That's the purpose of the gospel. That is, we're to go into the highways and the hedges of this world to reach those who have doubt, to reach those who are in danger, and to reach those who've been defiled by the great trenches of sin. Because there was a time in our life when we experienced doubt, we were hitting for hell, we were in danger, and we were defiled by the world and sin and the flesh. But are you willing to reach the lost at all cost? Listen, you don't have to be a Charles Spurgeon to reach the lost. You could be an Edward Kimball. Maybe you've heard of his name, maybe you haven't. But Edward Kimball lived in the 1800s and he was a Sunday school teacher. I thought about just saying just a Sunday school teacher, but, but it's far greater than just a Sunday school teacher. Because anytime you have the privilege of sharing God's word, whether it's just three people there or 333 or 3,333, you have the great privilege of teaching somebody the, the word of God. And so Edward Kimball noticed that he had about 15 students in his Sunday school class and he wanted to reach them with the gospel. So he marched into a shoe store one day and he saw Dwight Moody there. And he began to share the gospel with Dwight Moody and led Dwight Moody to Christ. And Dwight Moody would go on to be D.L. Moody, who would become one of the greatest itinerant evangelists of the 19, excuse me, of the 1800s. In fact, God would use him to share the gospel with more people in history up until that moment face to face. And that's awesome, but the story doesn't end there. During D.L. Moody's ministry, a pastor by the name of F.B. Meyer heard him preach and was compelled and moved in such a way by the sermon that he began a na nationwide evangelistic campaign. And under his influence, a baseball player by the name of Wilbur Chapman gave his life to Jesus Christ and he too became an evangelist that God used in a mighty way. His ministry would go into impact a guy by the name of Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday was one of the great evangelists of the 1900s. The sawdust trail as he had, as he had these tent, tent uh, meetings that he would do all over America, sharing the gospel and people coming to faith. And, 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 and listen, after he preached in a meeting in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1924, a group of people were, were compelled to gather together and pray that God would stir the people of Charlotte and beyond and awaken them with the gospel. And that prayer was answered by a preacher, an evangelist named Mordecai Ham coming to Charlotte and preaching the gospel. And in that meeting, there was a young 16-year-old boy named Billy Graham. And Billy Graham accepted Christ as his savior. And whether you agree wholeheartedly with Graham's ministry or not, he goes down in record as being the one to preach the gospel in person to over 100 million people. And we are told that two million people at least profess Christ during his crusades. My friends, you don't have to be a Billy Graham. You don't have to be a Billy Sunday. You don't have to be a D.L. Moody. You don't have to be a Charles Spurgeon. All you have to be is a faithful servant of God who's willing to teach the word of God to whoever God puts into your path. So may I ask you, will you dedicate your life to reaching the lost at all cost? What's up guys, Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith, keep.
the face. 